As I've been preparing uh, these messages, it's been interesting to, to basically almost be on call to be preaching in this situation. Um, a couple weeks ago, or I guess a couple months ago now, uh, Pastor Capayan talked to me saying that whenever the baby comes, I need to be ready to preach. And at one point he mentioned that uh, the baby was running two weeks early, so I was ready three weeks ago to preach. And then uh, ever since that point, I would wake up every Sunday morning and check my phone to see if I had a text message or voicemail wondering if this is going to be the Sunday that I'm going to preach or um, in the afternoon and you know, kind of try not to let my guard down too much in the afternoon thinking that I might need to preach in the evening service. Um, and it was interesting just how things played out and how I had different sermons basically prepared for each one of these weeks. And the Lord just kind of worked on my heart each week, kind of changing what he wanted me to have. And really, he, he kind of settled me on um, these passages in 1 John. We looked at the first passage this morning in 1 John 2, uh, verses 7 through 11. And then this evening, we're going to look at 1 John 2, verses uh, 12 through 17. Uh, and this is a book that actually I've been in uh, pretty frequently this over the past at least school year. Uh, we've been going through this book in high school chapel. Every time that I've had an opportunity to preach, we've been going through the book of 1 John. And it just really seemed to have these messages kind of come back to my heart and obviously not the same exact message because you guys are different than a group of 12 to 17-year-olds. Um, so it's, these are not exactly the same messages, but the Lord has really been working on my heart um, to bring these before you and really focus in on this concept of love. And this morning, just to do some quick review, so we're kind of all on the same page with, with where we are looking at 1 John 2, uh, we looked at our love concerning others. Right, we looked at our love concerning others and specifically looking at John addressing this commandment to these believers. And we're not going to go into great detail with this review, but looking at how we have a, a new commandment of how we're supposed to love. Right? Not new as far as a completely different commandment that we were given in the Old Testament, but rather a new, deeper um, type of love that Christ set for us. He set for us an example of self-sacrificial love, and he commanded us to love uh, the way that he loved his disciples, and that as Christians we will be known by our love. So we looked at how as Christians we are supposed to be loving others in a self-sacrificial way. And as we move to verses 9 through 11, we looked at really real love versus fake love, all from the perspective of a person who is genuinely saved versus someone who merely claims the name of Christ but has never placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ for his salvation. And how from this, if someone claims salvation but hated his brother, he is in darkness. And we look at that word hate as the overall view of your relationship with others. So if the overall consistent view that you, that you have in relationship with others is that of hatred, this is what John is, is relating to. And this all tied into how the false teachers that were in these churches that John was writing to were saying that you could live any way that you wanted and it didn't matter or have any bearing on your um, spiritual life whatsoever. So this would have been setting the record straight that you have to love. You can't go around hating 
um, your your brethren or your your fellow Christians, um, and when we do fall into hatred, that this is a stumbling block. This is a stumbling block to those who are unsaved because they look at a Christian and they should be able to tell we're Christians by our love, but when we are saying that we're Christians but we're not loving but rather hating, they get the wrong picture of what it's like to be a Christian. And sometimes they do not want to uh, be a part of Christianity because of seeing that hatred. But also it hurts fellow believers as if relationships of hatred are, are taking place or we allow hatred to take root in our life um, and, and leave it as unconfessed sin to where we are living in this sin of hatred and a fellow believer tries to create um, or tries to have um, restitution with us over an issue and we meet them with hatred, this causes them to stumble. And it also is harmful for ourselves. And we looked at all of this, again, in relation to the fact that this is how we are to love others. But John continues uh, in verses 12 through uh, 17 by looking at love from another perspective. John wasn't done writing about love. He talked about love in relationship to others. But now he is going to talk about love in perspective of loving the world and specifically the things of the world and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 12 through 17 tonight and before we before we get into this i'm going to read those verses and again we're just going to look at two main points from these verses tonight so first john 2 starting in verse 12 it says i write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake i write unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you. And ye have overcome the wicked one. Uh, verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, uh, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So we see the first point that we're going to pull out uh, from this passage tonight is that this message that John is giving is a message for all ages. So point number one is a message for all ages. In verses twelve through fourteen. John, again, is, is laying a very clear, um, or just a really clear way for, of God's perspective to know that there are only two categories of people in the world. There are those who are children of God, and there are those who are children of the world or children of the devil. Uh, there is there's no combination of the two. You, as a person, will either fall into one or two categories. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil and a child of the world. And John specifically is looking at those who are children of God. And as he is looking at those who are children of God, he is looking at the different progressions of his children. Um or John is looking at the perspective of the children of God from God's perspective, his children. Um, and really, as they progress in their Christian walk, 
as they progress in their spiritual maturity, uh, there is a, a steps from children to young men to fathers. We see these different levels expressing different ages. And again, these are not ages as far as physical age. This is not saying that you know, all children fall into the aspect of little children and all young people, or in this case young men, um, which is just referring to young people, fall into that category and likewise fathers. But rather this is talking about where someone is in their spiritual walk, where they are in their spiritual maturity. So this is, again, reaching de- different groups. You could have someone who is newly saved in their 50s and be in this little children category because these are progressions of their spiritual walk. And as I said, these are progressions, and with each one of these things, they're progressing in some way. Each group, from children to young men to fathers, are all progressing in some way, and that way is a deeper understanding of God and our relationship to God. This is what is moving us from stages of our spiritual maturity, from being little children to young men to fathers, is our understanding of, of God. But not only is there a deeper understanding of God and our relationship with God, but there is also a deeper understanding of our responsibility to God because of our relationship to him. There is there's automatically a responsibility that is tied to this relationship. Uh, The first progression is that of the stage of little children, and it's mentioned in, um, again, a little bit of a different order as we look through the word of God, but verse 12, it says in the beginning, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And then as you continue to go down in uh, verse 13, I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. And when we look at this first progression of the stage of little children, this, the basis for this stage uh, is a basic understanding that they have of God in the gospel. And John is writing to these little children that because their sins are forgiven for his namesake. Uh, this is pointing to the fact that in the first progression of this little children, Uh, the knowledge of God and the understanding that they have of God is very, very basic. It's the the basic foundation of the Christian life. They understand the fact that, first, there is a God. They see that there's a God. They know that there's a God. And knowing that there's a God, they understand that there is a standard that God has set. They understand to some level that God is holy and righteous and there's a standard in which they need to live by. And understanding that there is that standard, uh, they understand that they don't meet that standard. They, un- they know that they are a sinner in need of salvation. Um, but their knowledge really doesn't extend much further than the fact that they know that there's a God, they know that we're accountable to him, they know that we sin, they know that Jesus saves, and because of salvation, my sins are forgiven. Again, this is the very, very base level of the knowledge of God. But John is also sprinkling in a little bit of instruction and deeper truth to challenge these children in the faith. And that is that their sins are forgiven for his namesake. John is reminding them that ultimately Christ 
did not die, and God did not forgive them of their sins for, for them. And let me explain that a little bit, because sometimes when we hear it worded in a way of Christ did not die and God did not forgive us for our own sake, is that the ultimate reason for the cross and salvation was ultimately for God's glory. This uh, was the means whereby we could have right standing with God and worship him and have fellowship with him like he desires. This is how he initially created mankind. Right? Adam and Eve walked with God until they sinned. And God desired to have this type of relationship back, so he sent his son to die for us that we may have this relationship and therefore give him glory, give him worship, and give him praise. And the cross lays on us the obligation to no longer live for self, but rather we have an obligation to live for God. Salvation does not give us a free pass to live in sin, because our sins can be forgiven. Earlier in the book of 1 John, um, John is writing the fact that our sins are forgiven. We can have forgiveness in, in Christ, but just because we have that forgiveness doesn't mean that we have this free pass. And again, this is what those false teachers were, were saying, that you can live in sin and it's okay. So what John is making the point of in this first stage is not only the fundamental knowledge of the gospel and who God is, but also the fact that even children in Christianity need to know that it is no longer I that live, but rather that Christ who lives in me. We were not saved to live a life of sin, but rather a life of sacrificial service to the King of Kings. That was the purpose of our salvation, or one of the many purposes of our salvation. And then John goes a little bit out of order as we move to the next progression. So we'll jump down to the progression of young men. So we have children, again, basic knowledge, and then we have young men. Um, and as we, we look at this, uh, we see that in verse, uh, starting verse 13, I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. We see that these young men are those who have matured further in their faith. And as they have continued to grow spiritually, their knowledge of God has deepened. They are now described as strong. And they are described as having overcome the wicked one. Now their strength is not their own strength. Uh, them overcoming the wicked one is not because of something that they within themselves have done. The young men are strong and have overcome the wicked one because the word of God is abiding in them. They know God's word and more important than purely knowing God's word, they live God's word. It's not just a head knowledge of the word of God, but rather it is a heart knowledge as the word of God abides in them. I, I like the way that, that John MacArthur uh, makes a comment about, about these verses. He says, The young men are those who, while not yet having the mature experience of knowing God in the word and through life, do know sound doctrine. They are strong against sin and error because they have his word in them. Thus, they overcome the wiles of the devil, 
who makes havoc of children. Since Satan's efforts are in falsehood and deception, they have overcome him. And what I like about John MacArthur's take is that he really points and makes the connection of knowing sound doctrine and the ability to scrutinize and see through falsehood. Because the primary tactic of Satan is lies and deceit. Ever since the beginning, he was spreading lies and and deceiving uh, to cause sin. This is the, the main way that he attacks us. And the knowledge of doctrine is very important when it comes to overcoming these falsehoods, to seeing through the lies, to seeing through the deceit. But there are many today that feel it unnecessary to know doctrine. There are people who honestly have no interest in knowing doctrine. There are people that go to church and and who are saved that just want to have a feel-good message from God and his word and never want to be confronted with the challenge to continue to grow in their spiritual lives. They never want to move forward in their Christian maturity. Because the purpose of doctrine is not to be smart. It's not purely academic knowledge. It's not to merely fill our heads with knowledge, but rather the purpose of doctrine is to transform our lives. It is to push us into a deeper knowledge of God, to push us towards a deeper worship and praise of him as we know more about him. We should be pursuing doctrine for the transformation of our lives, to transform our worship, to transform our praise, to transform our knowledge of God, to transform our ability to withstand the wiles of the devil. We should be striving to have the most in-depth understanding of doctrine as we possibly can have. Because the higher the doctrine, the higher we climb in Christ-likeness. The more we know about him, the more we can be like him. And this leads us to the final stage of these progressions. The final stage of the progressions of Christian maturity. And this is the stage of fathers. And this stage of fathers is the stage in which is described by John of having known, the, that known God from the beginning. Right, this is what they are described as, having known God from the beginning. And what this is pointing to is really a deep understanding of God. The fathers are those who have the most mature, deep knowledge of the eternal God. And the eternal the aspect of the eternal god may be one of the hardest aspects as we as humans have to wrap our minds around right the the concept of not only not having an ending but also not having a beginning and the fact that these fathers have known god from the beginning shows their in-depth knowledge of even uh, starting to grasp the aspects that are confusing to most people through their knowledge of God in other areas. The pinnacle of spiritual maturity is to know God in his fullness. Philippians 3.10 states that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. This is the goal for all Christians. Our goal as Christians is to reach the stage of maturity where we know God in his fullness. It's a never-ending pursuit because you can always know more about God. But that should be what we strive for. 
We should strive to continue to know more and more about God from what we can see in his word. And it starts with the forgiveness of sins. It starts that we understand as children. It moves to the knowledge of sound doctrine that allows us to overcome the wicked one. And that knowledge of sound doctrine leads to the knowledge of the fullness of God. Being fathers that have known God from the beginning. What I find really amazing about the message that John is sharing in this passage and what he's specifically, specifically going to share in the next verses, in verses 15 through 17, is that this message applies to all stages. It applies to all progressions. Right? He just laid out the most basic of basic Christians, the lowest level of knowledge of God, of just knowing that there is a God and that we're accountable to him and need to be saved, to those who know sound doctrine and who are strong and able to overcome the wiles of the devil, to those who are fathers that have a deep understanding of the fullness and of the eternal God. Every single group needs to hear this message because it is extremely important. So let's look at that message. Point number two is love not the world or its things. Love not the world or its things. Verse 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. John is very clearly laying out for us here that we are not to love the world or the things that are in the world and of the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There is a very clear line that John is drawing of the difference of loving not the world and loving God. We can't mix the two. And rather than just drawing a line in the sand that can be erased and drawn again, this is a line that is etched in stone, that is permanent. Right? This line doesn't move. Right? And oftentimes Christians want this line to move. Right? There is God and the things of God here. And there is the line that is right here. And there's the world. And the world continues to move away from God. And what oftentimes people want to do is they want to erase that line as the world moves farther and draw a new line. And the, the world keeps going farther this way. So they erase that line and want to draw that line here. Meanwhile, as they're keeping an arm's distance from the world, they're now four arm's distances from God. The line to not love the world is not based off of what the world is pushing. It's not based off of the world's philosophy. It's based off of God and his word. There is a line that is etched in stone that we cannot cross. We can ignore the line, but it's still there. It cannot be erased. And love is the all-encompassing emotion that leads to action. This is why oftentimes love is described instead of defined. We oftentimes hear the phrase, if you love me, then show me. Love is more than words. It is action that shows the true allegiance and loyalty to someone or something. It is signifying affection and devotion. 
So we have two choices when it comes to our love. There is either loving God and his word, or there is loving the world and its things. And some may say, well, that's kind of extreme. Can't we find a way to integrate the two? Can't I love God and love some of the things of the world at the same time? And the issue with this thinking in this desire is that the world and God are polar opposites. God is holy and righteous. He's without sin and cannot tolerate sin. The world is full of sin and completely affected by sin. They're like oil and water. This is oftentimes a common science experiment that is done, in, I think, typically in, in middle school, but where you, you put water and you put oil together in a bottle. And you shake it up trying to combine the oil and the water. And no matter how much you shake up that oil and water, no matter how much proportionally you put of each, the water and the oil will always separate. And the oil always rises to the top. When you try to mix the world and God together, they will always separate. And the world will always end up on top. Because as humans, that's our natural inclination. This is why John is warning all people in all levels of spiritual maturity that we can't even sprinkle a little bit of the world into our godly living. Because if we sprinkle a little bit into our godly living, even if we know sound doctrine, even if we are those who are strong and able to overcome the wiles of the devil, if we allow some of this worldly thinking and the things of the world to infiltrate our life, they will rise to the top. They will start taking precedent in our life. And this is because of our human nature. John further explains for us in verse 16 that everything that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not in the Father. These are things that are not found in God, but rather they're found in the world. The world's offerings for us fall into these three categories. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh attacks and addresses our lustful desire to have comfort in gratifying physical desires. The world offers many things that promise to fulfill our flesh's desire to have comfort and to obtain physical pleasure. But what the world offers never truly fulfills. It's like something that you continue to have to chase after. You get a little bit of it, it doesn't satisfy, you need more of it. You get a little bit more of it, it doesn't satisfy, you've got to have more of it. So what oftentimes we feel is just maybe a little bit of the world turns into a lot of the world very quickly. The world also attacks the lust of our eyes, which is oftentimes the desire to accumulate things known as materialism. The world thinks that we can fulfill the insatiable desire by getting all the stuff that this world has to offer. If I just have that new car, if I just have that better job, if I have that bigger house, if I have that second house, you name it, the world claims that it'll satisfy. But at the end of the day, it's just the lust. And lusts don't satisfy. 
The final lust is the pride of life, which is the obsession with status, the obsession with importance. The world will make you think that you need to be seen with importance and have a status that makes you important. And again, this addresses all different levels, all different ages, all different people. They want, the world wants you to think, if your flesh wants you to think that you'll be satisfied if you're seen with this person, if you're associated with this person, if you have X amount of followers on social media, if you have X amount of friends that you talk to on a daily basis, if you have that higher title in your job, it'll make you more important. It'll, it'll fill that, that pride of life that, that the flesh is seeking. But with all these things, your flesh thinks that you need them for happiness. Your flesh thinks you need them for joy, for fulfillment. But lust never fulfill the true issue. The world's philosophies and ideologies and much that it offers may appear attractive. It may appear appealing. And that is the deception of the world. Its lure and pervasive nature is evil. It's harmful. Its deadly theories are against God and his word. The world and its lusts are the enemy of the Christian because it is the rebellion and opposition against God. All of the lusts of this world, all that they do is open opportunities for sin to enter into a Christian's life. So the Christian needs to be rejecting the world and the love of the world for not only what it is, but also what it does. And we see the ultimate end of the world and why it's important that we follow after God and his will. Verse 17, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We cannot allow ourselves to fall in love with the world. Because ultimately, the world and the way of the world is going to pass away. If we love the world system, we're going to continually lose out because it's only temporary. Even the lust that it promises change. It's like racing, and right before you get to the finish line, the goal changes. When we're lusting after things, things of the world, things that the world has to offer, we're lusting after that, and as soon as we feel like we're about to attain it, it changes. It passes away and something new comes on the scene. And then as soon as we get close to that, that passes away and something new comes on the scene. And it's this never-ending cycle of trying to fulfill a desire that will never truly be fulfilled by the things of this world. And we know that ultimately, the world system is temporary because Christ is going to return. And when Christ returns, the worldly system will pass away. And we will live with him forever. This is why it says that the will of God will abide forever. Not only does the will of God abide forever, but so do those who do the will of God. There is a choice. Do we love the world and the things of the world, the lust of the world? They're only going to pass away. Or do we love and follow the will of God, which will abide forever? And those who are saved will also abide forever. 
with him. So we see this evening in conclusion that our love extends beyond just our love for one another. We do need to be loving one another in a proper way, but it also extends to loving the world. The challenge to not love the world is extended to all because we all feel the pull and tug of the world no matter what our spiritual maturity is. We need to make sure that we're evaluating our life to see if we have love for the world. If we are saved, we cannot be giving in to the lusts of the world no matter what they may seem to offer. Because the love of God and the love of the world can't go together. The end of the world and its lust is only destruction. But the end of the will of God is everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, I do praise you again for your word. Lord, the reminders that it is, Lord, sometimes the harsh reminders that we so often need when we think specifically of the the reminder tonight of not loving the world or not being deceived into thinking that the lusts of the world will satisfy when true satisfaction is only found in you. Or help us to be evaluating our life to see if we are placing too much stock or any stock in, in the things of the world and the lusts of the world. Help us to evaluate our priorities. Help us to cling to you and know that there is a line that we cannot cross no matter how tempting the things of the world may seem or it only brings destruction. Help us to be those who know you, know you in your fullness, know sound doctrine, that we'll be able to see through lies and deceits and the things that the world has to offer being empty. Help us in this pursuit, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.